So we are in the middle of a series of conversations based on two little prophets from the Old Testament. We're going to start this morning by reading Jonah chapter 2, and this is a song from Jonah's heart. It's got just tons of quotes from other psalms. This is a song from Jonah's heart, evidently relayed to the author of this book afterwards, and he has composed this song while he's in the midst of drowning and then being uh, swallowed by a whale and being rescued. And this is the song that results from that. And Dean's going to toss that on the screen. We're going to read this together silently. So I want you to dial through Jonah chapter 2 together, and let's read this together. Father, our prayer this morning is that you would give us one pure and holy passion, a magnificent obsession to know and follow hard after you, that we would build our life upon your love, because it's a firm foundation. We pray specifically today, Lord, I don't know what anybody else brings on their shoulders or in their chest, but I know what I bring. And you know what each of us bring, and we pray today that you would enable us to deposit that in your loving arms and take up instead what you have for us, which is glory and goodness and what we were designed for. We need to recognize God, and we do. We recognize this morning that to do that, the first step in that is a step of repentance. And so train us in that this morning. Train us in repentance, what it is and how you do it. In Jesus' name, amen. In case you haven't learned this lesson from your experience with Facebook, I want to be the first to tell you, we don't change our thinking very easily. The theory of cognitive dissonance, some of you know that phrase, Cognitive dissonance is defined as the extreme discomfort of simultaneously holding two thoughts that seem to be in conflict with one another. That theory, the theory of cognitive dissonance, was first developed by the social psychologist Leon uh, Festinger in the 1950s. He actually came up with this as a result of a, a study that he conducted with several colleagues in which they embedded themselves in a cult that was led by Dorothy Martin. And the people in this cult believed that spacemen called guardians were going to come down on flying saucers and take them away from the earth before a giant flood came and killed everyone else. And their predictions were very, very specific. And then when they didn't happen, she would adjust the prediction and, and make it later. And when it didn't happen again, she would adjust the predictions again and make it later. And the researchers watched with fascination as the believers in this cult kept on believing despite all the evidence that they were wrong. So this is what Fessinger and his colleagues wrote in their book where they were kind of detailing that study. The book was When Prophecy Fails. They said this, a man with a conviction is a hard man to change. Tell him you disagree and he turns away. Show him facts or figures and he questions your sources. Appeal to logic, he fails to see the point. Suppose he's presented with evidence, unequivocal and undeniable evidence, that his belief is wrong, what will happen? The individual will frequently emerge not only unshaken, but even more convinced of the truth of his belief than before. 
This uh, doubling down in the face of conflicting evidence is a way of reducing the discomfort of cognitive dissonance. And this is part of a set of behaviors known in psychological literature as motivated reasoning. We have a motivation behind our reasoning. Motivated reasoning is how people remain convinced of what they believe. They seek out agreeable information and learn it more easily. So we capture the facts that we agree with more easily. They avoid, ignore, devalue, forget, or argue against information that contradicts their belief. We don't change our thinking very easily. Listen, I think many of us would agree changing our character is even harder. You've heard the old saying, a leopard never changes its spots. Changing our character is difficult at best. If this is true, how does it happen? How do we ever change our thinking or our character? We often talk about spiritual growth here at Gateway. Well, how does it happen? How do we align our thinking more with the way God thinks? How do we align our character more with God's character? How do we become more patient or self-disciplined? How do we grow as a mother or as a manager? Honestly, the process of change can be really complicated, but the Bible summarizes it with one word. Not to simplify it, but it summarizes it with one word, and that word is repentance. If you've been in church before, you may think of that as, a, I don't know, like a, a spiritual word. It really wasn't. It was a word that literally meant change direction. So if I'm going down tall cedars and I realize, oops, Moses back this direction, I need to turn around and go this direction. I have just repented. Or if I'm going down gum springs and I realize that 50 and the rest of civilization is back this way, I need to turn around, sorry Manassas, I need to turn around and go back the other direction down gum springs. I have repented. The word means to change direction. This is the key. And the degree to which we understand and practice repentance is what, quite frankly, prevents us from making and drinking some very bad Kool-Aid. We don't end up being a cult because of the process of repentance. More importantly, understanding and practicing repentance is what enables us to allow for real change in our lives, real change for the good. This is what enables us to become more patient. This is what enables us to be a better mother or a better manager. And we don't ever get away from the need for repentance. So no matter where you are today in your spiritual journey, how long you've been at it, you and I still need to have soft-hearted repentance as the major feature in our spiritual lives or there will never be any change. There will never be any growth. So in a remarkable, beautiful, even lyrical way, the song that we read from the second chapter of Jonah presents us with a clear picture of the basic nature of repentance. Understanding this picture, understanding and practicing repentance is critical for us if we want to grow into the people God designed us to be. And can I say something for those of you who are outside of faith looking in? For you as well. The leopard does not change its spots. But God can change those spots. I know it's weird, but I really believe that. And we only access that change capacity that comes from God through the process of repentance, understanding it and practicing it. So, Jonah shows us four vital components of real repentance. Often on Sunday morning, I'll say, hey, if you miss everything else, don't miss this because I want to underline it. All four of these are, if you miss everything else, don't miss this principles. So these are the four components of real repentance that you and I need to practice in our lives. Number one, Repentance involves a clear-eyed recognition of where we really are, emotionally and spiritually, where we really are. If there's some 
pattern of behavior in our lives, not practicing denial, not practicing blame, but recognizing where we really are. If there's some character in our life that we know desperately needs to change, if, if we have an anger problem or materialism or lust, repentance involves recognizing where we really are or knowing that we need to change something about our work life or our marriage that begins with knowing where we really are. Specifically, we've got to recognize that our life is a mess and our actions have been part of the cause of that mess. And they've driven us from God. So at the end of chapter 1, Jonah, if you've been here, you know Jonah hears from God. God tells him, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah says, no way. And he goes in exactly the opposite direction. He gets on a ship. Big storm comes up, waves. Ship is tossed. The other sailors are all afraid. They ask what's happening. They eventually realize, long story short, Jonah is the cause of this. He's running from his God. Oh, my goodness, Jonah, what do we do? Because they don't know how to appease this God that can even upset the ocean. Jonah says, throw me overboard. And they do. So at the end of chapter 1, Jonah resigns himself to being thrown overboard and ultimately to drown in the sea. That's the only result of this action. As we said last week, he was done emotionally and spiritually. He was finished. I quit, Jonah says. And as we said last week, pause for dramatic effect, this is not repentance. This was probably sorrow. It was probably guilt. This was probably depression. It was certainly resignation. This was quitting, no doubt. This was probably despair. But it wasn't repentance. With a really incredible insight, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament recognizes the important distinction that we're getting at here. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says this. This is awesome. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. And some of you know that cycle. If you have any kind of habitual or addictive behavior in your life, you know you do something. It's obvious to you, more so maybe than it is some of the rest of us, but this works in all of our lives. You do something, you feel terrible about it. Oh, my goodness, and you make vows, but what do you need to do to make that terrible feeling go away? You do it again. And you end up in a cycle of death. That's worldly sorrow. And it leads to death. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. So Jonah was thrown over the side of the ship by the other sailors, and then he recounts his experience for us in the first of this song. So we're going to read this together, the first part of this song, and we're going to read it responsibly. I'll read a light part, you read a dark part, and we're going to go old school. Let's stand out of reverence for God's Word. And let's read verse 2 through 6 together. Again, I'll read the light print, you read the dark print. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the earth swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I'll look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around me. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. You may be seated. Jonah reminded us that he was hurled into the deep, into the very heart of the sea. And that word hurled, by the way, is the same word that King David had used in one of his songs, Psalm 51, when he said, do not cast me from your presence. 
So Jonah certainly felt cast away from God's presence. Some of you recognize that feeling. He made that abundantly clear in the next verse, didn't he? He said, I've been banished from your sight. And when he said that, he's actually quoting Psalm 31, 22, which says, in my alarm, I said, I'm cut off from your sight. Jonah thinks he's drowning, and he thinks he's been cut off from God's presence. And I believe he's got very good reason to believe this. Uh, He was, quote, deep in the heart of the seas. And, And I understand that according to ancient Near Eastern sailing vernacular, deep would have referred to him going under the water and how deep he was under the water. And then that phrase, heart of the sea, would have referred to how far he was from land. So in other words, Jonah is in the middle of the Mediterranean, and he's sinking. And here's the point that we can't miss. He knew it. Sometimes you and I get in situations like this, and we don't know it because we're so busy. Well, we've got a couple of good plates spinning over here. He knew exactly where he was and what was happening. And he knew what he had done. And he knew that it had led him to this place. And he knew that this place was a very, very bad place to be. I want you to watch this video. Honestly, I believe what Jonah might have been feeling when he gets thrust over the side of that ship. This is fascinating. He'll, the, the guy on the video will explain. So watch this. I got off the bus. I walked slowly down the walkway of the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, people rode by me, drove by me, walked by me. And a woman approached me and she said, will you take my picture? She said, thanks, and she walked away. It was that moment I just said, nobody cares. The reality was that everybody cared just couldn't see it. I ran forward and using my two hands, I catapulted myself into free fall. What I'm about to say is the exact same thing that 19 Golden Gate Bridge jump survivors have also said. The millisecond my hands left the rail, it was an instant regret. And I remember thinking, no one's gonna know that I didn't wanna die. In four seconds, I fell 75 miles an hour, 25 stories, and I hit the water. Uh, I was in the most physical pain I had ever experienced. I have ever experienced. The Coast Guard was amazing. Uh, He was just so freaked out that I was alive that he just dove in and brought me on board. The guy said, do you know how many people we pull out of this water that are already dead? And I said, no, and I don't want to know. The guy put his hand on my forehead and said, kid, you're a miracle. Thousands of people have tried to end the misery by doing exactly what Jonah did, giving up and leaping over the side of the Golden Gate Bridge. He fell roughly 25 stories, hit the water 75 miles an hour. Very few survived, but of the 19 that have, evidently it's common for them to report that they experienced regret the instant they realized the decision was irrevocable. Jonah knew exactly where he was. He knew with blinding clarity, and he regretted it. I want to read verse 1 and 2 from Jonah 2. We didn't read all of this a second ago. Verses 1 and 2 says this, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, from the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. 
In other words, I know right where I am, God. I'm so sorry. I'm in a mess. I'm in the worst possible place. Help! Jonah experienced a clear-eyed recognition of where he really was. So if you're in a place this morning of blaming others, others are involved, no doubt. If you're in a place this morning of blaming others, if that's where you are, you're not repenting. If you're making excuses, any excuses, you're not repenting. If you come to my office to talk about your serious marital issues, I can guarantee that you have a clear-eyed vision of what your spouse is doing wrong. If you had an equally clear vision and a sense of where you are in the mess, it would begin to get better. Repentance involves, first of all, a clear-eyed recognition of where you really are, where you are. Secondly, repentance involves a clear-eyed acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and saving power. The Apostle Paul, he's writing in the New Testament. He's one of those New Testament guys, and he offers up a pretty startling image in this epic discussion where he's talking about how it is, what happens when we really make a connection with God. Listen to what he says. Listen to the image he uses. He says, as for you, you and me, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. All that stuff that separated you from God and just your lifestyle. You might not have been, you, th you thought you were a decent person. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Think about that. Dead people don't make changes. Dead people don't even make choices. Dead people don't grow. Dead people decay. And that's all they do. He adds this later on, three verses later. But God, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Listen, I know. I've had conversations with some of you. I know a few of you are exploring faith. You're intrigued by something and you want to know what's going on in here. And if you're listening to this later, I'm pointing to my chest. Or you're intrigued and you want to know what's going on in here maybe. And I'm, if you're listening later, I'm pointing to what, out to Gateway. That means God is already at work in you. He's stirring in you. That's why you're here. You and I are not here because we're clever or, we're, or because we're good or because we're spiritually attuned or even because we made a choice. We're here because God in his great mercy is stirring in us. I want you to remember how uh, Jonah put it. Jonah said, In my distress, I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Pause for dramatic effect. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me, and all your waves and breakers swept over me. You brought me to this point, God. I was thrown into that water by you, your sovereign activity in my life. If you're stumbling into Gateway this morning, you're here because God is stirring you. I can't tell you how many times it's easy for me. It's easy pickings because of what I do and because of the change I've seen in my own life and the change I've seen in some of yours. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've met some of you, shook your hand and I don't know what's happening. That was awesome. Tell me why. You tear up. 
I don't know, I just feel like, and I'm able to say to you, you know, that's because God is at work in your life. And inevitably, your reaction is just like mine. You're overwhelmed. You start crying sometimes. I'm embarrassed. You're embarrassed. It's because God is at work in us. Bobbing in the middle of the Mediterranean, watching the ship recede against the horizon, Jonah did not need to improve his swimming skills. He did not need to imagine himself lying on the shore. He did not need a strategic plan or a vision board or self-discipline. Jonah needed a sovereign God who was willing to save him. Somebody say amen. amen. Did you know Alcoholics Anonymous, some of you are familiar with the work of Alcoholics Anonymous and its, its relatives. Alcoholics Anonymous was begun by two Christians. It's an awesome story. They outlined 12 now famous steps to sobriety and to change and to renewed life, and it has worked for hundreds of thousands of people to bring real change. Not surprisingly, these steps make practical the process of repentance. I want you to listen to the first three steps. When you go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting sometimes, they'll say these steps together to rehearse the process of repentance so that they can remind themselves, I was going this way, oops, Moses the other direction. If I want something to eat, I got to go this way. I was going this direction, throwing my life into whatever it was I was throwing my life. Oops, if I want to go a different direction, I got to do this. Let's read number one together. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. A clear-eyed recognition of where I am not what anybody else has done to me, where I am. Let's read the second one. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. They have these sayings in the recovery world that they constantly reminded themselves of, these little quips that help them kind of stay focused. And one of those is, my best efforts, my best efforts got me here to this mess. I want to give you an illustration of what repentance looks like, if I can. Repentance does not look like this. I know I need to change. But they need to change too. And they got to get that right. That's not repentance. Educated Northern Virginians are good at this. Wow, that's really interesting. I need to think about that. That's not repentance. It's interesting, but it's not repentance. Repentance is embarrassing. Repentance is, I'm a mess. I have completely blown it. I did this, and I got here. Help, because you're the only one that can. That's repentance. Repentance involves a clear-eyed acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and saving power. God's sovereignty and saving power. Third, repentance involves an abandonment of all dependencies and values apart from God. An abandonment of all dependencies and values apart from God. Here's how Jonah said it in verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. So all of those things that we cling to that give us 
pleasure or meaning or fill our day or purpose that have nothing to do with our connection to God. By clinging to those things, we forfeit the grace that could be ours. We have to abandon anything that demands our ultimate time and attention. We have to abandon all our idols. I'm going to offer a weird illustration, so stay with me. Diane's going to love this. She's been hearing about this for weeks. Diane's my wife, for those of you who are visiting. I've told Diane I feel like I am completely living in, the, in 19th century America. It started this summer when Diane and I went on vacation a few weeks ago, and I read a biography of a Civil War general, and it was awesome. It's one of the best biographies I've, I've ever read. And I came back, I was so fascinated by it, I started watching the Ken Burns uh, Civil War documentary on Netflix, which is also great. If, if you haven't seen that, that's worth seeing. Uh, so I picked up just recently another biography. I didn't, I'm not reading it. I'm doing it by Audible. So every time I'm in the car, I'm listening to this biography. It's written by the same guy who wrote the biography I read while I was at the beach, and it's really good. It won a Pulitzer Prize, and I thought, it's got to be pretty good. I had no idea what the title meant. Shoot, I meant to look it up while in between services. I still can't remember the title. But anyway, it's something like the something of the summer moon. Empire of the summer moon. I got it. Thank you. Yes. And it's about basically the Plains Indians on the frontier of America, roughly between, you know, 1820, 1830 to 1870, 80, 90. And it is a fascinating story and a fascinating read. It does a really good, even-handed job of presenting that part of our history. Nobody comes out a hero in this thing. I'll give the ending away. But it's a really good read and a compelling biography and story. If there's a centerpiece, if there's a person, there's really not. But if there is, it would be an Indian named Quana Parker, whose mother was a white woman. So those of you who are from Texas, this will sound familiar to you from third grade Texas history. But Cynthia Ann Parker was living with her family, a very influential family in Texas history for a couple of generations. She was living with her family on the very edge of the American frontier and the edge of the edge of American frontier during the 19th century or the middle of the 19th century was in Texas. So here they are, you know, kind of near the panhandle of Texas, living out there in an outpost, and, and they are 20 miles further out than anybody else, and even the ones that are kind of near them are, are out there. And this was Comanche territory. And the Comanches were the, probably the fiercest and uh, the final Indians left in America, and they ruled the southern plains. They not only obliterated all of the other Plains Indian tribes, they obliterated the Spanish when the Spanish were trying to make their way up through North America, just like they had done through South America and Central America, moving like Sherman with his tanks until they hit the Comanches, and the Comanches sent them running back to Europe. So these same Comanches, now half a generation later, are on the plains attacking these American settlers because they're beginning to encroach on their traditional hunting grounds. And here's Cynthia Ann Parker, a nine-year-old girl playing in the courtyard of the fort that her family has built. And Comanches ride in and kill everybody and do damage and take five or six captives. And this is one of the things that they did. They would take captives, take them back to their village, do war dances, and six weeks later or nine months later, they would sell them back to white people at a huge profit. So they take all of these captives, and I think they kill them all except nine-year-old Cynthia Ann Parker, who's evidently a beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed white girl. And Cynthia Ann Parker, 
away from Western European and Western European heritage people eyes, she begins to grow up as a Comanche. And she becomes the fascination, and that's not too strong a word, the fascination. She's the parlor talk of the entire East Coast of the United States. What has happened to Cynthia Ann Parker and even Europe? There are Europeans talking about articles being written about Cynthia Ann Parker, especially 10 years later. A fur trader, I think, makes his way into a Comanche village and sees a white woman. He has to run her down. She's running from him. He has to run her down. He finds her. She doesn't speak English anymore. They're able to communicate with one another, and she is able to adamantly tell him, let me take you to safety. I'll trade for you. No, I don't want to go. Well, now the fascination goes through the roof. What in the world is this beautiful white woman who comes from civilization? How in the world could she choose to be out there with those savages? She's seen, I think, four or five years later. Same experience, only more dramatic. Somebody, uh, a chief agrees to negotiate for her and buy her back and then has to go leave, has a conversation, comes back. Yeah, actually, I can't negotiate her release. She's married, has a kid. You're going to have to talk to her husband. Talks to the husband, adamant, no. Looks at Cynthia Ann, you know, basically trying to communicate to her, I'll rescue you, and she's communicating back, I have no desire to be rescued. I think it was 10 years later, sometime after that, 1861, don't hold me to that, but sometime around then, a larger force comes into this Comanche village and they've kind of had enough of Comanches raiding and destroying Texas outposts. So they, they're going to do some damage to the Comanches and they ride in and they, they obliterate this village. Now, most of them had already left, but they had left behind a bunch of supplies and they, they really did some damage to the Comanches. Wipe out the village, kill everybody. These are the U.S. soldiers. Kill everybody. They see four people getting away. Two very young warriors riding off this way and two what seem to be squaws going off this way. So they divide. These two get away. They don't realize until later that one of those is Quana. So they go after these two. They kill one. They get near to the other. They're already shooting at her. She pulls up her horse, turns around, opens her shirt to show that she's a woman, and she's got a baby in her arms, and she says, Americano, Americano. This is Cynthia Ann Parker. So they take her back to civilization. And they begin to love her and just show her, Cynthia Ann, <laughs> this is what you've been missing. And she doesn't get it. She sleeps outside. She keeps doing war dances. They can't figure out what in the world's going on. They think maybe she's insane. They send her relative to relative to relative, and Cynthia Ann Parker keeps trying to escape. She wants to go back to the Comanches. This happens over the course of years. The daughter that was with her, the daughter grows up desert flower, becomes this delightful young girl, learns English, of course, fluently, begins to go to school. Evidently, she's a happy, gregarious, delightful young girl. She contracts the flu, and dies. And Cynthia Ann's grief becomes unbearable, and she stops eating and gets weaker and weaker and weaker. Eventually, Cynthia Ann dies herself. You know, I don't think, I don't know, I wasn't there, and I don't know enough of the story, but I don't think that they ever, they, the white relatives, I don't think they ever got 
that Cynthia Ann, when she was 10 years old, she was playing Comanche games. She was learning to ride a horse free on the open plain. She was learning to skin buffalo. She was being raised by a culture that valued the hunt. They were applauded, not by the latest purchase of a Mercedes SUV. They were applauded by how many buffalo they killed, how many horses they were able to capture and train. They moved from place to place nomadically, always under the stars, happy and free, swimming where they wanted to swim, setting up camp where they wanted to set up camp. Cynthia Ann Parker had a completely different value system. Here's the point of that really long, boring illustration. We have a different value system. Our culture is Jesus culture, not American culture. And that means we live according to Jesus' values. In order to do that, we have to constantly examine ourselves and repent. We have to make sure that we are abandoning all our idols. So you want to remodel your kitchen. Maybe that's awesome, but why? You have to ask. You want your kid to play this fall on the travel baseball team to be the star. Maybe great. Why? You want to go to Disney World this Christmas for vacation. Why? We're Comanches. And the culture is constantly trying to domesticate us. And we have to ask why every time. Repentance involves an abandonment of all dependencies and values apart from God. This is why it's constant and this is why it's complicated. Repentance involves a firm determination to follow the way of the Lord. So it's not just turning. It's turning and saying, I'm going this way and nothing will deter me. I want you to listen again to verse 9. This is not on the screen, but I want you to listen to verse 9, the very end of Jonah's song. And then I'm going to read the first two verses of chapter 3. We haven't gone over this yet, but I want you to hear this. Verse 9 says this, But I, with the song of uh, thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what, what I vowed I'll make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And listen to chapter 3. The word of the Lord then came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. William Borden was a millionaire. His family was one of the wealthiest families in America. They were from Chicago, early 1900s. But Borden felt called into missions. It's reported that one of his friends said to him at one point, you're throwing your life away. Borden graduated from Yale University in 1909. By the way, college students, listen to this. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started something that would transform campus life. One of his friends described how it began. I'm going to quote from his friend. It was well into the first term when Bill and I began to pray together in the morning before breakfast. I can't possibly say whose suggestion it was, but I feel sure it must have originated with Bill. We'd been meeting only a short time when a third student joined us, and soon after a fourth, the time was spent in prayer after a brief reading of Scripture. Bill's handling of Scripture was helpful. He would read to us from the Bible, show us something that God had promised, and then proceed to claim that promise with assurance. Borden's small morning prayer group gave birth to a movement that soon spread across campus, and by the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. 
By the time Bill Borden was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in such groups. <laughs> when Borden finished Yale, he went to Princeton Seminary. After Princeton, he felt called to share God's love in the Muslim world, so to preparing for that, he went first to Egypt to learn Arabic. While he was there, at 25 years of age, Borden contracted spiral meningitis and died. It was reported that Borden had three phrases written at the back of his Bible. No regrets, no reserve, no retreats. Not long after his death, a woman named Mary Taylor wrote a biography of Borden's life, and she said this in the introduction. A wave of sorrow went around the world at the news of his death. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself, in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. Repentance involves a firm determination to follow the way of the Lord, whatever that may be. Let's pray. Lord, I believe you've spoken this morning, and I only ask that we would hear. I don't know what you have stirred up in any of us, but look, Lord, we give you permission right now to continue stirring. And if on Tuesday we want to take that back for some reason, I want you to remember that today we said, right now we said yes. We said yes to you. Lord, we want to see who you are, sovereign and saving. We want to see who we are, creating messes. And we want to resolve to follow you with a firm determination to fix our gaze on you. Hear us. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Do you guys stand? We're going to do one more song in closing.
you pray with me? Father God, you are so good. Your love extends to us even in the pit. Your grace finds us there, Lord. It is your kindness that leads us to repentance. So God, I pray today that as maybe a decision was made, we know you will honor that decision, God. Help us to hold steadfast to your goodness. And Lord God, I pray that if there's something on our hearts that we're wrestling with, that you would be faithful as we know you are to continue to have us wrestle with that even as we leave this room, even as we leave these people and these songs around us. God, you are so good. There's no other thing to live for than to glorify you. It's in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Have a blessed Sunday. You are dismissed. Thank you.